Today on Early Music Monday, we're going to be talking about the infinite game. We're going to have an interview with composer Ernesto Herrera from Cuba, and our composer profile is on Cuban composer Esteban Salas. This is Early Music Monday. Okay, so I know the infinite game, it, you might be thinking, what is that? And what does it have to do with early music? Well, I will tell you. I think that for anyone to be really successful, there are some key principles that no matter what your field is, you need to find a way to incorporate if you're going to have long-term success. So there's a book by Simon Sinek. I love Simon Sinek. I think he's a boss. He probably is someone's boss. But I think that as a leader and tr like leadership training, he has some of the most profound thoughts and books and research about this that I've come across. And no matter what role you are in life, whether you're a musician listening to this or not, whether you're conductor, singer, composer, performer, independent, you know, freelancer, and then out of the music field, who knows, you are a leader of something. And if you're going to have long-term success, it's important that you play the infinite game. So I'll give you a brief well, there's a book that he wrote called The Infinite Game, and he basically breaks down two different mindsets that you have that typical businesses tend to have. And, and so this is all geared towards starting a business, but it's really easy to apply to, again, whatever field you happen to be in. So he gives an analogy of if you think about a sports event, a sporting event, and people are sportsing around doing sports, then usually you have two teams, two opponents, you have a certain set of rules, then there's a time limit or a goal limit, and then the game is over and one person wins. That's a finite game because it has an ending and a winner. Then he talks about how a lot of businesses operate with that mindset of finite game. We want to win. We want to be the best. We want to be the best choir. I'm going to be the best composer. I'm going to be the best singer, et cetera, et cetera. And then he talks about how important it is to play the infinite game. In an infinite game, there are established rules, just like a finite game, but there is no time limit, and it goes on forever. And the game will never stop. The point for the contestants in the game is to stay in the game as long as possible. So think about that in your field or your area of life. How are you going to stay in the game as long as possible? So I take that to, you know, the choir world. I think a lot of people get caught in the mindset of, oh, my high school is going to be the best and we're going to get the best scores. I'm saying best really weird right now. Going to be the best. Lots of buh. But are you going to be the best 
why am I doing that? Sorry. <laughs> are you going to be the best in your field or are you, you know, you're going to get not as high scores? Are you the best school in your school district or are you one of the lower end in the school district? And I think that's a mistake. That's a mistaken mindset because that's a finite game. So there are five essential elements to playing the infinite game that you need to have within your organization or your whoever you have stewardship over or whatever. The first is you need to be advancing a just cause. Second is build trusting teams. Three, study your worthy rivals. Four, prepare for existential flexibility. And five, demonstrate the courage to lead. And there's a chapter, there's several chapters on each of those topics and those area in, in each of those areas. And it's so fascinating. I haven't even got all the way through it yet, and I'm already geeking out about it. But this is what he taught. So I'm going to kind of paint the picture of Cuban composer Esteban Salas and his life in those five categories of the infinite game. Because it illustrates to me the importance of playing the infinite game because it lives on long past. Think about the, the composers or painters or authors who didn't sell very many things in their lifetime or didn't have this unbelievably prosperous, wealthy life because no one got what they were trying to do. But then years later, everyone, like the rest of society, caught up like, oh, I get it. And then like like George Seurat, the painter, pointillism. He didn't sell a single painting his whole life. And now like there's a musical about him and, and his paintings sell for crazy money. He was thinking the infinite game. Okay, so Esteban Salas was a Cuban composer. And so we're going to start with adva- number category one, advancing a just cause. So to give a little bit of background on Esteban Salas's life, he had the absolute worst birthday, Christmas Day. He got totally screwed on the presents game. I'm sure. I'm sure of it. It's the worst. But he began musical training when he was eight at the Havana Cathedral in Havana. He planned to be a priest. At 15, he began studying composition as well, and um, he flourished really quickly. So his reputation... Uh, caught fire really quick and people knew who he was so this sparked his vision his vision was to spread the beauty of european art music throughout the island uh, combined with some of the afro-cuban influence as well but to really make cuba uh, well, I, I don't know what it was like then but to make cuba a musical hub worldwide musical epicenter with a high, reputation for high quality music he got that vision because of experiences that he had. Number two, build trusting teams. So slightly different than in a business, but the same principles apply. So as he developed that reputation amongst his contemporaries, he really did start to build colleagues and um, kind of networking uh, people from Spain and people within the country, within the church, who trusted him and 
kind of caught on to the vision of what he was trying to accomplish because the church, the Catholic church had the same vision for Cuba, especially when Spain, you know, the church in Spain at this time, uh, Esteban Salas was like the late, late 1700s. He passed away in 1803, 1803, maybe 1740 something. I can't remember the date, 1740 something to 1803. But, and so at this time, Spain wanted Cuba to have this really strong church tradition as well with paid singers and choristers and to build the reputation of the church and then therefore with it, its music. So, and then his character contributed to the trust that he built within his community and within the city of Santiago, which is where he was trying to build this kind of musical epicenter. So there's a really famous, well, I'll get to, I'll get to what people wrote about him a little bit later, but in his case, the team consisted of not just people that he met and knew and worked with in Santiago, but also uh, like generations of composers after him. Eventually, there was there's there's a music conservatory in Cuba named after him, and again, we'll get to some of those details in a little bit, but. Something about him and his vision caught on to this team aspect that lived well beyond just who was alive at the same time as him. During his lifetime, he more than doubled the number of musicians employed at the cathedral, and he created that that reputation and that team of musicians and pedagogues because pedagogy was a big deal, and so this team kind of started to bubble around him. Okay, number three, study your worthy rivals. Now, rivals is kind of a weird word. Uh, If you think about it in a competitive business sense, you might think that other composers or other musicians are rivals, which isn't really quite right necessarily, but it kind of has the same sentiment. You know, maybe study your contemporaries in this case. But there was a composer named Pagueras from Spain, and he taught Salas counterpoint and brought scores from Spain, well, actually, all, from all over the European continent, uh, particularly from Neapolitan composers. And Pagueras taught him counterpoint and composers like Scarlatti and those other things. They're like Neapolitan composers, the just like the ice cream. Best composers, best ice cream, best conquerors, best everything, apparently. And he grew to be a counterpoint master. Why does it always come back to counterpoint? Counterpoint must be <gasps> the secret weapon. Dun-dun. It's kind of like in voice lessons when everyone's like, what's the secret? And it's like, just breathe better. <laughs> That's what all the pros always say. Get better at your breath control. There's no secret. It's just mastering, 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 counterpoint, counterpoint, always, 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 always. So seriously, if you're a composer and you want to play the infinite game, counterpoint has to be your foundation. So he studied these composers and really incorporated it into his compositions. 
and and it spread again like wildfire. So that's step three, study your worthy quote-unquote rivals. Number four, prepare for existential flexibility. This one's a tricky one because, I mean, and I think that in the choral world, we've had to do this recently in the, in the, I don't know, it was just a couple minutes ago that we were in this like pandemic thing and we had to adjust existential flexibility. We had to make a pivot, a shift. How are we going to keep going? So in his case, there was an earthquake that decimated the cathedral in Santiago and he was relentless in his work to rebuild it. That was one thing that w- required some existential flexibility. Another thing is that the the musical resources when he first arrived in Santiago before the earthquake were not that great. So he said, okay, I'm going to teach. So he dis- he became a great pedagogue. And then when the forces, then his compositions really were able to have this the same sort of scaffolding and magnitude of some of the compositions that were happening on the European continent that he was studying and trying to uh, not mimic or imitate, but trying to bring their influence to the island. There's another existential pivot, flexibility. Another thing that happened is that he took vows of poverty, meaning that he was going to live without taking any possessions. He's going to live off the church, basically, and then give everything back to the church. But he was eventually asked to pay back his debts to the church. And it was it was kind of weird. But And he, he was eventually absolved of this debt, but I can't imagine the stress that that would cause of, you know, I live in a 21st century world and that concept is really hard to grasp and be like, cool, well, now you owe us this much. It was like, what? So I'm sure that was a huge stress that he had to <laughs> overcome, and he had the flexibility to do it, which kept him going. Okay, and then the last one is demonstrate the courage to lead. This is where I think Esteban Salas really demonstrates why he is one of the most well-known historical musical figures in all of Cuba, if not the most well-known. His vow of poverty, he took that vow of poverty so he could dedicate himself to the church and to music. That's the first thing. He is completely dedicated to his art. Another thing that made him a courageous leader is that he cared deeply about the musicians that he conducted. So he petitioned the church several times to get higher wages for them. And it he was awarded they were all awarded higher wages at one time, and then the second time is when they said, No, and by the way, you owe us. But he took really good care of his team. He never gave up rebuilding the cathedral. And his his care coming back to his character, there was a famous Cuban writer named Carpentier. Carpentier. It kind of looks like Charpentier, but it's not. Um he said this. He was a, quote, figure of angelic purity, an ingenuous soul, trusting, incapable of tolerating any deception, a true mystic. He had taken vows of poverty and always dressed in black. Sounds like Batman, like Cuban style. 
pretty decent guy. So that those principles kind of demonstrate to me how he played the infinite game. It would have been so easy for him to just say, well, okay, or I'm going to do this now so I can get a really good position. And I'm sure, how many composers are there, do you think? For every composer that we know about and have studied in history, how many other composers were there who were maybe popular in their day but didn't contribute very much so we don't talk about them? Because they didn't play the infinite game. They played the finite game. And I think that's really important for our organizations like my high school students. I don't care what you know scores we get right now. I want the students to take ownership over the program and build a reputation to where, hey, Spanish Fork High School is going to be something significant in the choral world, in Utah anyway. And they're going to have a reputation that lasts well beyond me. And what am I doing now to help them play that game? Sound of Ages. I hope Sound of Ages is the same thing. When Sound of Ages, when I die or retire or whatever or can't conduct anymore, is someone else going to take that vision and carry it forward to be something that Sound of Ages is playing the infinite game? Am I setting it up that way or not? So the legacy... Salas's legacy of playing the infinite game, you fast forward through Cuba's war with Spain and the insane revolution. In 1959, the most prominent musical conservatory in Cuba was named after Salas. There's musical conservatories all over Cuba. And there's several, in our interview with Ernesto Herrera, you'll hear that there's like six pro choirs, that you know, pro-paid professional choirs in Havana. That's incredible. What a rich history. And that's because of Salas, really. He start he was that spark. Because he set up that rich history and tradition of caring deeply about pedagogy and high quality music from wherever. It doesn't matter it didn't have to be strictly, you know, Western European. They incorporated a lot of Cuban uh, Afro-Cuban influence into their music as well, even into their classical music, and it still lives on today. So when you're feeling down or you're feeling r- upset or you feel like you're not making a difference, just ask yourself how you can play the infinite infinite game. And maybe there's something you can do to have a, a shift from the, your existential moment crisis. You can have some existential flexibility set your vision straight, and then find ways to pivot and still meet that vision. So our compo- or that's our composer profile. Our composer interview today is with Ernesto Herrera. And I'll just say, I never heard, I heard one piece by Ernesto Herrera like a month ago. Uh, Dr. Andrew Crane and the BYU singers performed a piece of his and it is like a contemporary Cuban palestrina. The counterpoint was amazing. The texture was so engaging. The harmonic language was, like pulls you in. The melodic line was smooth and seamless. It was amazing. It was an amazing piece of music. So to get to sit down and talk a little bit with Ernesto was a really fun experience. Um, 
he speaks English actually pretty good, but he didn't feel as confident as he wanted to. So we have a translator, um, Andres Veras, I believe is his name. Let me double check that. Double checking, double checking, double checking. Pause. Uh, Andres Rivas, I believe is his name. Um, but Andres is his translator, who's also a or- orchestral conductor up in New York. And Ernesto is now living in Florida, and they both kind of fled, not fled, not kind of, they definitely were escaping some pretty rough communist uh, regimes in their respective countries. Uh, Andres is from Venezuela. But you'll hear Andres talk through his compositional process and through some of his musical influences uh, and hear his thoughts about music in general and the importance of choral music and so without any further ado we will turn now to our interview with Ernesto Herrera awesome well thank you both for being here and for agreeing to come on the podcast I'm so excited Uh, I have not so just a brief little intro I was in BYU singers um Oh my, four years ago, four or five years ago, um, and studied with Andrew Crane, and and so I still follow them. And when I saw their performance of your piece, Ernesto, I was just like super blown away. And and uh, I I love early music, and I heard so much Renaissance counterpoint influence in your work, and was just I was like, holy cow, I have to talk to this guy <laughs> because. He, uh, it was so, so great to hear. So, Ernesto, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and I, I actually had not looked into very deeply the music from Cuba, um, until I had reached out and then I've been doing some research and reading a bunch of articles and research papers and been looking up, you know, things about Esteban Salas and, and kind of the history of, the Cuban choral classical music scene. And it was really mind blowing to see kind of the journey that classical music has taken in Cuba. And so Ernesto, I'd love to hear kind of your journey on how you came to be a composer. Okay. Um, pues la historia es un poco eh, diferente a lo que usualmente um, vemos de cómo se forma un compositor. So Ernesto's journey is a little bit different than uh, the stories we pretty much all know about other composers, right? Yeah. I like that. <laughs> um, eh, yeah. <laughs> eh, la, la manera de estudiar música en Cuba, o sea, Cuba tiene un programa de música un poco diferente a lo que sucede en, en el resto del mundo. The way um, music education in Cuba, the way it is, is actually different than how the, re- the rest of the world, um, you know, is doing. Sure. And uh, how so? ¿Cuál es la diferencia? Yeah. Y la música se comienza a estudiar, el programa de música se comienza a estudiar, las carreras largas, como las llamamos, el piano, um, le decía que la música, 
eh, programa de música en Cuba, eh, se empieza a estudiar desde los cinco años las carreras que son de piano y de cuerdas frotadas, las demás a partir de los siete años. So in, in, in Cuba, particularly, uh, people start studying music when they are five years old, six years old, piano and other, you know, other, other major um, within the field. Uh -huh. Entonces, lo que me sucedió a mí fue, sí, sucedió a mí fue que yo no pude, no tuve la oportunidad de estudiar eh, música desde temprana edad. So, yo no estudié música realmente. Um, it's really unfortunate because he didn't have the uh, chance or the opportunity to, stu uh, to study music in his early ages. Mm. So he started a bit late. Empezaste luego, ¿no? Sí. Lo que sucede, lo primero que yo hice, como en, en el mundo de la música, es hacer unas audiciones para cantar en un coro. So what he did is, what, is that he auditioned to get into this choral group, this, this choral, um, the, into the chorus. Um, okay. Y me nombré realmente de la música coral cuando comencé a trabajarla con esta agrupación que se llama Cine Nomine. ¿Qué se llama? Cine Nomine. Cine, okay. Cine Nomine is a, is a group that he got into when he auditioned to this um, chorus. And that's where he actually uh, like fell in love with music when he started working on music, actually, with, yeah. with, with other people. Yeah, and so how old were you, Ernesto, when you uh, were got into that 19 chorus? 19 years old. Nice. Yeah. In this group, it was very bonito because in this group, it was the one that gave me the opportunity to describe it, although I didn't know music, but I had an intuition musical advanced. Le escribía y ellos me cantaban mis obras. And this made uh, Ernesto really happy because even though he didn't have a lot of knowledge in music, um, they let him compose uh, so for them to sing his music. Even wow. though he was that. Um, yeah, like technically was... proficient. Yeah. Correct. Wow, that's amazing. Creo que, la, o sea, creo que la respuesta oficial es que es un regalo que Dios me ha dado, esta posibilidad de um, entender y canalizar la música de la manera que lo hago sin haber tenido estudios previos. So, um, if he wants to say the official answer, yeah. uh, it would be that this was a God's gift that he gave to Ernesto, because uh, starting from the fact that he didn't know about music, And then this group started to sing his song. That has to be something from the, you know, from beyond yeah. humanity. Yeah, that's, that's so great. I think that's super profound. And so when did you take, I, and it's really interesting because, you know, there there's a lot that um, a lot of people will say, oh, he's a natural. And then you work on the technical aspects of the craft and the skill And so, and I'd say you have both. I'd say you definitely have a natural talent, but then you also have clearly uh, technical skills. So when did you start taking then like classes or courses in technical training? Sí. Um, lo que más me ayudó fue cantar en la agrupación 
y leer muchas partituras. So what really helped him, helped him back then was singing, mm -hmm. being able to sing, and also look at the at the music parts. Yeah. That so gave him the training. Yeah, so you de, can de see esa it. Manera, de esa man sí, de esa manera fue, eh, fui aprendiendo hasta que a una edad alrededor de los 29 años eh, hice um, el, los exámenes para entrar a la Universidad de Música y es que obtengo por primera vez, o sea, empiezo por primera vez a estudiar oficialmente. Canto so when he was 19, oh, sorry, when he was 19 years old, um, he got into this group and yeah. um, 10 years later, uh, because of the training of this group, he could audition into the university or, or some music school um, mm. known, really well known in Cuba. He got in and that's where actually, you know, Yeah, taught him all these skills, all these um, compositional, sure. right? All the technique and and stuff. Uh, that's so fascinating. I, I, uh, something that strikes me as profound is when 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 we get to kind of uh, how do I want to word this? So when we get too modern, it's like cool. What else is there to write? Everyone used all the notes. The notes are they've all been used. Now what? So then we, we kind of have a tendency to look back towards previous time periods and look back in history to say, well, what did these people do? What are some composers that you look to, Ernesto, as your you know, influence? Bueno, primeramente, tengo que decir que una de las cosas que hice fue revisar muchas partituras de compositores antiguos. So the first thing he has to say is that he had to look into uh, older music, you know, from, from back then to understand maybe the style and the composition itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have any specific composers that... Monte, Monteverdi. Oh, wow. Yeah. Monteverdi. And, and what about... Um, oh, sorry, keep going. Eh, me gustaba muchísimo Monteverdi. Tomás Luis de Victoria, um, Lotti, um, Yesualdo es uno de los que más uh, mm. me gusta, pero el que más me apasiona es uh, Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah. So that's, those are the same composers that, that I think, I mean, so... I'm sure there's specific aspects about each composer that kind of draw you to them. Um, so if you could break down one or two elements that are you see as being kind of contained in all of those composers' works, you know, you take Monteverdi and Lotti and Gesualdo, and Victoria and Bach, What's something that they all do that you think is crucial to composition, I guess? Okay. La, la relación texto-música de Monteverdi mm. para mí es una de las cosas más espectaculares que tiene él. So the relationship between the text and the music from Monteverdi um, it was something, what is something really special for Ernesto when it comes to compose um, yeah. a piece. 
and I definitely hear that in in the pieces of yours, Ernesto, that I've heard. So, um, la la locura armónica de Jesualdo, eso de ir de tener un pensamiento agudo y extravagante incluso para su momento. Yeah, the the um the ideas that Jesualdo. Je yeah. Um, you, the, you know the ideas he had um, on his pieces back then were really revolutionary and extravagant, and I, and I think that's still a thing even um, today's. You know. Yeah. Today's. Um... Yeah, that's and and it's really cool how you you can take something like Jeswaldo. But it it still follows those fundamental elements of just pure interval and consonance versus dissonance. And even though it's really revolutionary, you still have these ideas of balance and 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 I think that's a really hard thing to find. It, sometimes when you get too deep into the twentieth century, you know, serialism and atonal music. But but to incorporate that into your works. Um. Uh, again, it's definitely apparent, and I can hear it in the things that that I've heard of yours. So my next question is: uh, once you take once you take a piece of music, um, or let's say that you have an idea that you want to compose something, what is your process like? Do you start with text? Do you start with start at the keyboard? Do you write by hand? I would love to hear you kind of talk us through from the very first idea all the way through, you know, performance and publication of your pieces. Lo primero que hago para escoger una obra que voy a escribir es enamorarme del texto, de lo que quiere decir, de la profundidad que tenga el mensaje, texto en sí. So the first thing I do, or Nestor does, um, you know, when, when composing a piece for the first time is getting in love with the text, really understanding what the text means, and that will give you know, an, an idea of what the music If he's not really in love with the text, there is no music whatsoever to mm. come out, out of that. Yeah. After he reads the text and really understands every single word, then um, there is like a series of, um, let's say, musical images in his yeah. head that he also uses uh, to, to compose. Wow. So then, Ernesto, after you get those kind of images, then what's your process for kind of organizing them out? What what roadblocks do you face and how do you overcome those? And Realmente es difícil responder esa pregunta porque no hay como un patrón. Sencillamente esas imágenes llegan a través de las vivencias musicales que he tenido y trato de it's really hard to answer this question because mm -hmm. there is not like a pattern that right. he follows to write his music. 
um, is something new every time he writes a piece. Um, so these uh, musical images per se um, gets to him and uh, because of the experience he's had at composing. Yeah. So that, that that's, I guess, his way to, to present, you know, to, to um, write down every single note. Sure. Yeah. That's great. And what what is, uh, if you had to pick, you know, where do you feel the most comfortable writing? Like for what, is it for voices or is it for, for voices acapella or accompanied by piano or something or string instruments? Where do you feel the most at home? Me siento más cómodo escribiendo para voces acapella. O sea, creo que la voz es el instrumento perfecto, el que Dios creó, eh, y uno de los más difíciles para escribirle, pero creo que tiene um, el poder de comunicar lo que ningún otro instrumento, instrumento creado por mano humana puede hacer. Um, he feels comfortable writing for, for voice, a cappella. Mm -hmm. um, he thinks, I think so too. Yeah, um, nice. Perfect. It's a, it's a, it's a perfect instrument, God made. Yeah. And uh, I, he's saying that I, it's it's really hard to, you know, get to the get to the pool, like get to the audience. Um, not not hard, but um, it's just it's it's just it it helps the voice helps since it's natural. It's it's God made. Yeah. It's natural. It's easier for him to to think about that than to think about something um, men. Right and like abstract, and I feel like right. that. Because it's, you know, that God made the voice that it's something that all human beings share, which is why it's so great that, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Cuba and America were not necessarily friends. And now now all of a sudden we can have this conversation about choral music and you say two words, counterpoint, Monteverdi, acapella, and we're instantly at the exact same wavelength. I know exactly what kind of things we're talking about and the voice that carries that through really does touch your heart, you know, and, and I, I think it, I, I tend to agree with you. So, <laughs> um, so that being said, um, what types of, do you have a pre preference Ernesto on, writing secular music versus sacred music or where do you turn for your text inspiration? Um, realmente eh, la mayoría de las obras que he compuesto son obras sacras. In reality, uh, pretty much all the pieces that he has composed um, came from um or can you say like church church music? Yeah, so, yeah. You know, sacred, 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 sacred music. Sacred, yeah. Sacred, sacred. Yeah. Pero lo hice pensando en la viabilidad, o sea, que era mucho mejor, más fácil meterme en el mercado de esta manera porque la mayoría de los coros cantan música sacra. And he was, um, he thinks it was easier for him to get into this world, this choral world. Because most of the, of the groups um, in in the world actually sing uh, sacred music. Yeah, so and 
Yeah, that's and that's great. And I think that yeah, you're right. There's because singing, like churches, church choirs are still such a, you know, popular and it's a tradition that's been going on for a thousand years and is still going strong. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I have another question of what what um. What is the choral music scene like in Cuba right now? If I were to go to Cuba as or if I was to go to just be, say hey, I want to make a living as a choral musician. What would it be like? What would I do? What would I see, you know, that sort of thing? Okay. Eh, bueno, en Cuba realmente hay un muy grande movimiento coral. There's a big um, music choral program in Cuba, actually. A pesar de ser una pequeña isla, realmente hay um, un programa diseñado y pensado para que el movimiento coral crezca. Incluso dentro de la universidad tenemos una carrera llamada Canto Coral, diseñada para los cantores de coro. Even though Cuba is a small island, um, this uh, music project, choral music project, um, it's uh, it's a thing in Cuba. It's a really important thing in Cuba. And um, to the point, can you please repeat the last part? They To the point that the uh, in the in the universities in Cuba, there is a major in mm -hmm. choral music. Oh wow, that's fantastic! And and well, keep going. Sorry, I thought he was going to keep going. Oh, el movimiento coral cubano eh, es un movimiento coral profesional donde se le pagan a los cantores por uh, por, por esta labor. Yeah, the, the 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 singing, you know, the, the, these choral groups in, in universities are actually professionals. Even though they are students, right? Because they're under the university, they sing professionally, and nice. they actually are paid for it. Yeah, for for doing this labor, for doing this work. And is that a lot of the times? De La Habana, la capital del país, hay seis agrupaciones corales de este tipo. Only only in Havana, which mm. is the capital of Cuba, there are six professional uh, choral groups. Wow, that's amazing. And do they, do they usually like, so if, if, I, if you were in one of those groups and studying, do those people, like, they, do they get paid for primarily church services or is it like they're just a group and they sing for the community audiences and they're bringing in audience members from all over the city? Sí, realmente te encuentras de las dos cosas. Puedes lo mismo. Uh, estas agrupaciones cantar para la, en, en teatros, iglesias, salas de conciertos, o sea, es, eh, es abierto realmente para eh, distintos tipos de, de público. You can find you can find the two groups, the, the groups that only sing for church, you know, ecclesiastic mm -hmm. um, events, and the groups that actually perform in a concert halls uh, for the community outside, outdoors. Yeah, both of them. Cool. And uh, is it possible, like, I, it's weird, I know in, 
I've been to London, and I know that London is a really unique place in the choral world because you have people who their only job is to sing in choirs, and they're in like 10 of them, and they sing every day. In the United States, there are some people who do that, but it's harder because it's so much more spread out. There's not that many choruses in located in one city. So in Cuba, <clears throat> I guess, if you were a professional singer, what's what's the, like, do most of those singers have other jobs as well that are outside of music, or do they just kind of hop around the different choruses and and just sing a bunch? Um, la parte triste de esta historia, porque parece bien bonita, es que la verdad es que con el dinero que le pagan a los cantores y a los directores no se puede vivir en Cuba. The sad part out of this is that yes, exactly as you as you stated, um, they get paid, but it's not enough right. for them to live. Um, so they have different other jobs related or not to music. Gotcha. So there's some of both. And that's and that's really similar to what it is in most in most United at least here in Salt Lake City area of Utah and most of the other major cities you're either flying around to a different city like every couple months to sing and then you're teaching voice lessons or or teaching choir at a university or some kind of music job or maybe you do some other day job but you just happen to have a, a you know really good singing voice so that's that sounds like it's really similar to the United States then and so my next question doesn't necessarily have to do with just the the choir world but I know that there's a very distinct and I you'll have to forgive me for being not as well versed in the Cuban choral world because I am still relatively new to it but do you have what are some musical elements that are distinctly Cuban that are kind of incorporated into kind of the Western European influence of you know the modern choral music or classical music that you write? Por supuesto que hay una influencia muy grande de la música de there is a there is a huge influence from from uh, the Western people, specifically from African people in Cuba. Entonces podemos apreciar mucho ritmo diferente a lo que quizás se escucha acá en Estados Unidos, que es mucho más melódico. Podemos escuchar mucho ritmo en en el hacer de los compositores cubanos. Therefore, um, you hear a lot of rhythm in the songs, in the music, because it came from Africa. Um, something that, for example, in, in the United States, um, it's not quite the same as here. It's, it's, it's about the melody, it's about the song, it's about the, the, the music itself, but not so much related to the rhythmical part of it. Sure. And that makes a lot of sense, because I'm sure that there's a lot of, especially in the music of Africa, there's a lot of music in some African dialects, you know, the music, the name, the word for music and dance are the same. So it's all about, you know, moving, movement and that sort of thing. And how do you, Ernesto, incorporate that sort of rhythmic, 
uh, identity, I guess, into your sacred choral music. Because to us Americans, sacred music should be really boring and really stiff, and you know, not not all not all of us, but just some of us. So. La verdad es que yo escribía especialmente para esta agrupación sin nómine, la que fue mi escuela y en donde aprendí todo lo que sé. The thing is that because I only he only wrote for his group that group in Cuba cine nómine cine nómine is the name of the group. Yeah, yeah. Um, the fact that he only wrote for them. Mm -hmm. uh, yo realmente al principio de mi trabajo como compositor escribía pensando más en la manera de los europeos. My beginning, let's say, as a as a composer, when 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 he started composing for the first time, he was thinking more. He was influenced in a way from the European composers. Precisamente porque esta agrupación estaba compuesta de contratenores y la mayor parte de su repertorio respondía a la música eh, antigua. Because the, the contratenors in this group mm -hmm. um, were used to sing, to, were used to sing um, this type of music from Europe. Yeah. So it was easy for, for, for Ernesto to write a piece that would you know match their, their register, their voice. Right, and what they're used to. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. pero, pero ahora mismo si hay bastante influencia de la música cubana en mis obras. Um, but then, uh, after a certain, you know, point in life, um, there is a real huge influence of Cuba, of Cuban music in Ernesto's uh, compositions. Yeah. Ahora mismo acabo de terminar una obra que se titula Afroluya, que es una aleluya con ritmos afro, afro, africanos. Um, in fact, he is writing a piece right now, a piece now that is called Afroluya, which is Hallelujah, um, and it, it, of course, like uh, it has some African elements. Yeah. In the rhythm in the, in the music. Wow, that sounds amazing. When is it going to be uh, premiered? Who is it for? Anybody, or is it just something that you're working on now? <laughs> um, well, we can say here for the first time that there is indeed no group that that you know has um, been set up to sing his um, this composition, this Afroluya. So, if there is any group out there that would love to to sing this, well, movie. I would I would love to look at the score when you finish. So, so if 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 you'd send me a, a perusal sample copy i would love to look at it because the something that's something that my the the professional choir that i started called sound of ages does is we our whole thing is to to illustrate to bring early music out of the museum a little bit because it uh, as important as the last generation was in bringing this kind of renaissance music to life it's kind of been stuck in a museum and it's hard for just the common audience to understand sometimes and so it it doesn't live and uh, but and people a lot of people even myself included just five years ago 
didn't really understand how fundamental those early, early composers were to the music of today and all of the connections. So we, we, we combine Renaissance and medieval composers onto a program with composers of today and do lots of different elements to kind of make those connections really come to life. So that way we can keep those dead composers alive and show their influence in modern composers. So what, that's, that's one of the main reasons why I was so taken by your piece that BYU singers sang, because I was like, this is Palestrina reincarnated Cuban style. Like, this is amazing. So I just, I think that that would be amazing to kind of get a, to get a perusal copy. Cause I would love to, to program some of your works sometime in the future. That was a really great compliment. <laughs> and that, that comes from Andrew Crane, Dr. Andrew Crane himself too. I said, I said, who is this guy? And he's like, yeah, he's Cuban. And I don't know how Dr. Crane found your music. He, he is all over the place finding all kinds of up and coming great composers. So for him to, to find your piece, you're in good company. So my, my, uh, my next question is what, what are some things that you see in, you know, the, the classical slash choral music scene, some trends and, and how do you fit yourself into that trend? Pues, um, yo creo que la música desde siempre, o sea, la música en la historia se ha comportado cíclicamente. I think the music throughout the throughout the history is is being like a circle in a circular movement. Y yo creo precisamente que eso es lo que va a pasar en el futuro. O sea, hay hay una manera de hacer que se va a repetir porque sencillamente vamos a ir buscando los sonidos o las maneras de hacer anteriores a nosotros pero siempre con las nuevas herramientas que nos da la modernidad. Um, yeah, he's saying that uh, the, 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 the music in history is like a, it's like a uh, how do you say it? cyclic. Yeah, cyclical. Cyclical. Um, and uh, I think it, it, he's saying that it will it will continue the same way, but with new with new sources, with new sonorities, with new but the idea of the music itself uh, compositionally would will stick. Would, would be the same over and over again with new yeah so um what do you th what do you think in your mind if you were talking to a starting composer who's just kind of starting out what are some advice that 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 you would give that composer to kind of fit into that cycle that you were just talking about si tú estuvieras hablando con un compositor que está comenzando apenas a componer, ¿cuáles serían tus sugerencias hacia esa persona para entrar en este en este en este, en este círculo que tú estabas hablando ahorita? Pues, número uno que fue lo que me funcionó a mí escuchar muchísima música de cualquier estilo, cualquier compositor. 
So uh, his first advice to this person would be, number one, to listen to all type of music, all uh, uh, composers, all styles, different styles. Mm. Listen, uh, he would also advise to listen to the music while looking at the score and, mm. and, and actually seeing what's on page. The dynamics, the style, you know, the, all the techniques. Yes. And to keep finding their own way to um, um, put their music out there for people to understand, to not give up. Yeah. To always keep, um, you know, uh, find, you know, fighting for their dreams. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Andres, what about you? What's your advice? What about me? I, I, yeah, I mean, um, it's not hard, you know, no one, no one, no one makes it in, in, in months, in years, you know, you, you have to have discipline. Yeah. To get, to get to your, to your, to your goal, you know? Yeah. And sometimes the goal might not happen, but the journey, it's really great. Yeah. To be, and, I, and I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree. Well, that's, uh, that'll give me plenty to work with for this, for this episode, but I, I would love to have both of you on again. <laughs> it would be fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. That sounds great. Awesome. Thanks so much for tuning into the show today. What a great episode. I love thinking about the infinite game and how to apply it to a choral setting. We can make choral music, you know, we can think about choral music together as a community in infinite game mindset. Um, check out that book by Simon Sinek. You can get it on Amazon or really anywhere you get books. I had a great interview with Ernesto Herrera. I hope you were inspired as I was to hear some of his story and to get a taste of what kind of music he is inspired by and to hear his compositional process. We'll hopefully be able to have him on again. And be sure to like and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating. Write us a really nice review, pretty please. It's awesome uh, when we get those reviews and see you know what what we can do better and what you guys want to hear. So again, thank you. Play the infinite game. Compose, perform, sing, listen, experience, enjoy all the early music. And we will catch you next time on Early Music Monday.